All right. Well, good evening, everybody. Good. I, uh, I'm, I'm told I'm going to have to project my voice because we cannot get the, uh, we can't get the ear thing, you know, the volume thing here. So hopefully you guys can hear me. Can you hear me, Shelby? Okay, good. I'll try to project. We've got uh, no, but welcome to the live stream audience. I'm looking right into the cell phone here, and it's in this little thing, and it's being, and it's still crooked, but you should see how crooked it is without the two flip-flops that are underneath one side. I don't know how we do this without our tech team. It makes us really grateful for the tech team that we have. Um, so anyway, it's good to see everybody on live stream. Thanks for watching, and thanks for everybody being here tonight. Um, it's good to see everybody. I love to see people come out to a midweek Bible study. It just warms my heart. I, I think I've told you this before, but when I was young, uh, my parents would have a Bible study. It might have been on Tuesday or Thursday nights. And my favorite part when I was little, because I'd be trapped off into the little Florida room by myself, but when, when, I, when I saw them get up and begin to move around, I knew it was dessert time. And they always had brownies, uh, homemade brownies with the walnuts and all those things in it. So when I look at the table over here, it's always very nice to see. I'm very excited to see that all the time. So... Um, the buffet is still open. You feel free to grab something while we're getting started here. But I um, just want to welcome everybody. I, I, uh, I'm excited to teach us. Pastor Greg and I are sort of, sort of tag-teaming uh, this book, and it's a wonderful book. Um, it's, it's all about God's hand of provision. And uh, so I'm, I'm excited to, to go through this, but I always want to begin with prayer. And so I would like to ask if anybody does have any prayer requests and anything that we can go over and pray for um, as we begin to uh, this tonight and we begin to pray uh, anybody have any anything on their hearts? Yes, Barb. Okay, Barbara, what's your name? Lily. Lily has COVID. That's Barbara's daughter. We're going to be praying for her tonight. Um, my daughter Emily, as well, is 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 uh, uh, she started on Saturday and today is, she's much better, but it's just you know it's going around. It's it's more like a common cold with a fever added to it. You know, or, yeah, that's basically what it is now. So, thank God that we've kind of all seemed to have gotten through it at Vero Bible Fellowship. We had a few people with it. Um, anybody else? Anything we can pray for? All right. Yes, Peggy. Um, provision. Provision. Okay. For Peggy is asking for provision, and that can mean many things. And we're gonna. We know that the Lord can provide no matter what it is and what we're asking Him to provide for. We'll see that tonight as well. Um, so, anybody else? All right, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin the Bible study tonight. Father, we, we thank You for this day, Lord. We thank You for those who are gathered here tonight, Lord. We pray that, uh, that uh, the Holy Spirit, You will minister to these people. Uh, Lord, that as we open Your Word, that You will speak through uh, Your Word and uh, that, that we will hear and we will be able to apply the things that we need to apply, Father, in our lives. That we'll learn more about you, Lord, in this. Uh, Lord, we pray for Lily, uh, who has uh, Barbara's daughter who has COVID right now. Lord, we pray that you will give her strength. And then even in this downtime that, you could, uh, that you'll minister to her, Lord, um, and just to help her recover quickly, Father. Lord, we pray for, pray for Peggy, Lord, for your hand to be on her. And uh, for provision, Lord, and in whatever way she is requesting, Father, we know that you are the great provider, uh, Jehovah Jireh, my provider, Lord. And we pray that you will uh, just come alongside of her and provide for her in whatever she needs, Lord. Uh, again, thank you, Lord, for bringing us all here tonight, Lord. And I pray that this study 
uh, again, uh, is a focus on you and who you are and, and how we can apply these things into our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, amen. I um, take a sip of water here. Again, it's a strange, strangely technically uncouth night. I'm looking into an iPhone here. I'm having to project, but it's, we all know that we have the Word of the Lord here, and that's really all we need. And so I'll do my best. I know there are people that preach from street corners, and there are people that are preaching sweaty little shacks and, and dirt huts, and, and so I think we can get through this tonight because we have AC. So that's a good thing. So before we get started, what I'd like to do is just sort of give you an overview. As I began this study, and Pastor Greg did a wonderful job last week of just giving an understanding of, of the background and the context to what we're, what we're doing and where this, this takes place. And so, um, so what I want to do is kind of reinforce some of that and then talk a little about, about some things that I noticed of this passage that I think are, are of, of note or of worth. Um, so basically, if we look at chapter 1, if we want to review chapter 1, I'm just going to kind of go through. You don't have to go there. Well, actually, if you want to turn, you may turn to chapter 1, and, and you might be able to skim through as I talk about these things. Um, but this basically was this massive feast that occurred. It was a 180-day feast that this King Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, however you want to say it, it's a very difficult name to say, but they were having a, just, a, just a, in the Persian Empire a massive feast in, in, in this region they were in. And they were, uh, they of course, within their, uh, their, uh, pr- their city walls were Jews that were living in there because they were taken uh, you know, hostage, so to speak. And, and all the Jews went to different areas. And so this particular um, this celebration that they had, when we come into chapter 1 here, this is the last seven days, basically, of, of the giant... Uh, celebrations that they were having. And it's almost like it ramped up to be like the greatest, loudest, wildest party they could possibly have this last seven days. Uh, it was filled with drunkenness. Um, basically, even in here, basically it says, I think if you look at verse in chapter one, if you look at verse, uh, let's see, we'll come down here. Verse eight, and drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. Basically, what that means is Drink to your heart's content. People, were, I'm sure it was just a big, giant, drunken thing that took place, but certainly not condoning it, but I wanted to give you an awareness of what was happening during the time. Uh, so that led to King Xerxes or Ahasuerus deciding he wanted to, in a drunken state, decided that the, the, the piste de resistance and the, the last element of this massive party was to parade his wife around, to show all of the people that were gathered uh, that this, who, what real beauty looks like. And of course, um, uh, his, his uh, Vashti said, no, I'm not going to do that. I, I refuse to do that. We don't know exactly the reason why. Some scholars have actually thought that perhaps she was pregnant um, because she, we do know that she gave birth to um, uh, the son that took over for Ahasuerus. And so that was the, I, I can't bring his name up on my uh, tongue right now, but, but she, he was the next in line, and so she might have been pregnant, or she might have simply refused, because she had her own thing going, and she didn't want to be paraded around, um, so there's a little bit of debate on that, but needless to say, she did the right thing, but in that, he decided that he was going to make an example out of her, lest everyone in the kingdom could be ruled by their wives, 
And so he sent her, he demoted her, so to speak, sent her down, and she was no longer queen. And so that's kind of where the story picks up. But before we do that, I wanted to explain some, you know, as we study the Bible, I think it's important for you to make sure that you have, uh, when you read a passage, to have a good understanding of the passage. You need to know what's going on in the passage, but you also need to know what's not going on. Sometimes we read a passage and we think we know what's happening, or we think we know what God might be saying, but we're not really sure. So the best way to know, really, is to have good commentaries. And, and commentary is simply, um, there are many scholars through biblical history from the Puritan era on, even before that, that have written their uh, simply comments and, and, and given an understanding of what actually is going on in the Bible passages. And when you have several good commentaries in front of you, three or four, and they all seem to align, then more than likely that's the, really what God is saying and what most scholars and biblical people believe what is happening in a passage. Because we know that things can be wildly taken out of context. There are things that are on walls that are from Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Isaiah and Jeremiah that really have nothing to do with us right now. It was really for a time and a people and a place. So you want to make sure that you have a good understanding through commentaries. And so I, I love a Matthew Henry commentary. It's a really good, strong commentary. John MacArthur has a great commentary. After preaching through the Bible for 53 years, the man knows his Bible, and he's, he's got a wonderful commentary out. And there are many others. Uh, one thing that I like to use also when I'm studying is a survey of the Old Testament. It's a survey. It's basically an overview of contextually what's happening, historically what's happening, what's happening in politically, and then just a, an idea of really what, what occurs and happens. So I wanted to read a few interesting things I saw briefly about Esther, uh, not to step over what Pastor Greg did, but just things that I saw in this that I thought were interesting. Uh, here's a neat one. It is interesting to note that only one other book in the Bible is named after a woman, Ruth. We just went through Ruth, right? One writer has made this comparison. Ruth was a Gentile woman who married a Jew. Esther was a Jewish woman who married a Gentile. Isn't that interesting? And that's what we see in this story. I, th I thought that was kind of a very interesting thing. Uh, contextually, historically, I just wanted to tell you this. The story of Esther, just to give you an understanding, took place between the first return of exiles, the Jewish exiles, who were returning back to the promised land, right? So there were three major uh, journeys back to the promised land after the Lord had had them sent away and taken over by the Assyrians and by the Persians. And so this is all taking place between the first and the second return back to the land of Canaan. So just to give you an understanding of where, where this uh, what these events are taking place. And, and towards the end of this, you'll see that uh, it, well, even, there's even a movie out about the book of Esther. And at the very end of the movie, you can see the, the, the Israelites beginning to journey back. And so this is, takes place between the first and second, uh, return back, and then there's a third one later on. And Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are all take place nearly in the, in the same, this one period of time. And so, so it takes place between the uh, first and second uh, return under Ezra. And so another thing that was interesting uh, is that this book is dated, everything that occurs in Esther is dated between chapters 6 and 7 of Ezra. So a lot of times, you know, like we, when we were reading, studying the Kings, we would go to the Chronicles and we would see things that were 
that was more of a detailed description, but oftentimes we jump to the Psalms and, or Jeremiah and realize that King David was talking about things that we were reading about right then in the Kings. And so there's some interesting uh, crossovers there. So that's written between, in the books of chapters between 6 and 7 of Ezra. It's also interesting to observe that around the time of this book, of the book of Esther, three great world battles were fought. It's oftentimes there seems like there's a gap sometimes between what we know as Christians and the Bible, and then you've got the history books. And you always wonder if they, do they align? How do they align? You know, because it's the same period, but you never see much of that alignment of, of what happens when. But this is interesting, though, because now we know that King Ahasuerus is King Xerxes, the famous Persian. That's him. And so you find these things to be interesting. So here's the crossover that's neat. Uh, three great world battles were fought during this book, this time. The, uh, the, the Battle of Salamis, Thermopylae, and Marathon. And two great world leaders died. Confucius and Buddha, the same time Esther was written. And that's interesting. Now, they're dead and gone. They didn't rise again, but they died during this time of era, of the time frame. I thought that was kind of interesting. The last thing from this uh, book that I just wanted to share with you, I think it's the last thing that I highlighted, is that um, the key word of this book, now you'll notice that in this entire book, Greg's, Greg, Pastor Greg said this last week, uh, the word God is not mentioned. God is not mentioned in this entire book, but the word Jew is mentioned over and over and over again. Well, it says here, the singular form appears eight times, the plural form 43 times. The term Jew is derived from the word Judah. I did not know that. Since most of the returning exiles, the Jews, were of the tribe of Judah, the title Jew was applied to them and then extended later to in the later years to all the Hebrew people. So it's short for Judah, Jew, and then that applied eventually to all Jews that we know now. And that came, that's where the origin was. It was short for Judah. I thought that was kind of interesting. So those are just a couple of things that I wanted to share with you that as you, te- as you go through a passage, you want to just get an understanding of when it was occurring and what was happening at the time and what are some of the nuances of the names and, and, and who was who and when they were working with each other. So um, so let's go ahead and talk about chapter 2. If you want to go ahead and turn to Esther chapter 2, and as you do that, as I take another sip of water, I had a nice spicy sandwich for dinner. <laughs> Brent talked me into it. Um, there are two major events that are going to occur in this book tonight, two major things that you're going to see. The first one being that, that Esther is, is going to be heralded queen. She will be selected as queen in this, in this, in this particular uh, chapter of the book. The second thing is Mordecai. And Mordecai, if you remember from last week, I don't know if, was he in the picture last week? I don't even remember. He might not have been. No, not yet. Well, Mordecai is Esther's uncle. Okay. No, I'm sorry. I, I said that wrong. It's his cousin. It's her cousin. It's her cousin. And it's almost a kinsman type of um, uh, fathering. It's not, it wasn't a marriage thing, but he took his, her cousin, she had lost her parents, and, and, but they were both killed, and he, t- Mordecai took Esther under his wing and was raising her like a daughter. So that you know, we've got a few players in this. We've got uh, King Ahasuerus, we've got his men, and we've got Esther, and we've got Mordecai. Mordecai is a key player in this thing. So in this passage, the second thing that happens is Mordecai, her cousin, who was 
keeping watch of her, uncovers an assassination attempt on King Ahasuerus. So those are two of the major things that are going to happen that we'll see tonight. Now, when it comes to application, there's an overriding theme all through Esther. And what it is, is simply that God's hand of provision moves forward regardless of what's going on with mankind. And oftentimes God uses, I've said this before, I don't know if I made this up, I might have, I might not have, I might have heard it, but I think I made it up, is that God uses man's failures, man's folly, and man's faithfulness. And we'll see all of those things in this particular passage. And God will use those things to get, God will get done what He wants to get done through all these things. And so God's, fail, God's failure, His foolishness, I'm sorry, man's, God will use man's failures, man's folly or foolishness, and His faithfulness to accomplish His plans. So, uh, and, and, and basically, uh, again, the overriding theme of, 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 the, chat, of the, the whole book itself is God's hand of provision moving forward. In this particular chapter we see, and we'll see in other chapters, that he'll, he'll, His hand of provision will move forward in spite of humanistic traditions. And we're going to see those tonight very clearly. So as we move forward with this, let's go ahead and begin in chapter 2. And as we go through this, I always like to, my, my preferential style in, in a Bible study, everybody does it a little bit differently, but I like to look at the overarching themes, which I just gave you, the two major events that happened and, and what the major theme is tonight. But then I like to go, just simply go verse by verse and stop at things that might need explaining a little bit. Because, you know, when you read a passage like this, some things aren't really clear immediately. So you have to reread them and, to get an understanding of what's happening. So I want to, number one, give you an understanding of what, what's happening, if there's anything that's unclear, and maybe give you some historical background of things as we go. And then number two, stop at certain points to notice certain key things and key points that, that God is using and speaking through to, to understand his either something he does or something we need to pay attention to or perhaps an attribute of God or something that we need to apply. And so we'll kind of do, there's three major things that we'll stop and see as we go through this passage. So let's go ahead and begin in verse 1. And I'll probably stop immediately after the first comma because I do that. After these things, let me stop right there. Okay, just to give you an understanding of what happened, she was sent away, Vashti, and then the, the celebrations were over. And more than likely, this celebration that they were having was a part of a planning for a battle with Greece they were going to have. And to let you know, it went miserably. And so at this point, it said after, after these things, these things really probably refer to that battle of Greece where, where the king is probably licking his wounds. Right? So that's what's happening here after these things. So it was an, an ill-fared Greek war. That's from a John MacArthur commentary. Um, so when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti. And that was the queen that he sent away. And, and, and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Well, let me pause right there. Um, Josephus, you may have heard... Pastor Greg talk about Josephus. He was a famous Jewish scholar, uh, historian that we, we read, and he gives us a really broad context of what, what was happening. And what he said, he said that uh, there may have been that the king wanted reconciliation. He almost regretted. He, had a, he was drunk when he did the whole thing and had a moment of, 
I, I, I lost her, I've lost the war, and now I, I'm, but he couldn't bring her back. He had already signed the decrees. It was, it was irrevocable. And so he had a regret. So his kings, all the people that surrounded him, come up with an idea. Let's continue through, through this. Then the king's young men who attended to him said, and here's the plan, right? Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of, this, of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa. Now, Susa, the citadel, that's where they were. This is where this takes place. When it, now, you go back up a little bit, the, all the provinces, this is a vast area. And I think even Pastor Greg talked about it last week. It was like from the Tigris and the Euphrates all the way down. It was probably like the size of the southeast United States, just a very large area. And so basically this was just a, a, a nationwide uh, uh, world, uh, what do you call it? a beauty pageant, so to speak, right? So we come back here. Let's pick it back up in three. Let me, let me kind of repeat. The king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem and Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Now, let me kind of just pause right there. There's an important point here. It's not necessarily a point, but it's, it, it's something that we're going to see later on. It's important to understand later in the chapter here why we talk about this. But a eunuch was... 99% of the time, a male that had been castrated. Why do they do that? Because they became docile and they became excellent servants and close uh, uh, guards to the king. They, they had no desire to, to, for uprising. They, had, they were, well, they were castrated. It, it, it makes for a, a more mellow male. And so it's, it's, it's right here in the Bible, and so I want to talk about it. And so they were very, they were regarded as being trusted and loyal because they weren't going any way. They were, their, their lives were to serve and only serve the king. And they had several different kinds of eunuchs. This one in particular, uh, they were, they were, he was supervising the, the harem, so to speak. He was over the women, the concubines. And then there were some that were closer to the king that would advise him on things. But I want you to notice, though, that these were loyal, loyal, loyal people, men, okay? Well, they, they're still men. So no matter what you do, they're still men, but they were very loyal, right? So let me continue here. Uh, so he was in charge of the women. Let their, so, and here's the rest of this, this idea that the guys had, the, the king's men. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Well, kind of the first point of this whole thing, as we see this, we're like, ew, that's gross. Concubines, harems, women's, this is not according to God's plan. I don't want to sugarcoat this in any way, and I don't, but I don't, nor do I want to elevate this in any way. Sometimes you'll see stories of Persian kings and their harems and feeding them grapes and all that. That was not God's plan. It wasn't his idea. Uh, the, so... This is an interesting point here because God uses man's humanistic, uh, tribally uh, driven uh, practices, and God will use this however God wants. It doesn't, it doesn't affirm this. It doesn't say that it's right. But 
but know that even through this kind of disgusting beauty pageant where they're just looking for the prettiest virgins and sometimes snatching them out of households, God will use this, but he doesn't condone this, obviously. So, but even through man's humanistic practices, God's plans will go forward. And I just find that very interesting because it reminds me, and I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, but it reminds me, do, do we trust in God's plan now? Because it, the last time I turned on the news, we have humanistic, uh, reprobate people in office. We have people that see good as evil and, and evil as good. And so I, 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 it begs the question, if things were so bad in this time and God clearly used this for His good purposes, can we trust the Lord? Can we trust Him and know that God has everything under control? I mean, it, it's very, it's very I, I, I mean, I understand what Christian nationalism is. I'd love to see the, the nation turn back to God in every way possible. But I just don't know that that's going to happen. It might. It could happen. For revival to come through this country, I think it would be wonderful. But we need to be okay to know that it might continue to spiral downward deeper and deeper and deeper. What are we going to do? What are, we going to, are we going to trust that the Lord has a plan? Because I know He does. It's hard to see it right now, though. And I, I would imagine for some of these young women that were being yanked out of their homes to be taken and more than likely not selected to be the queen and their lives relegated to be under keep. I, I wonder what, what they were thinking. Does God have a plan in this? These young Jewish women that could, could have been taken out? I don't know. That's a hard one. But I think, I think the, the, the application here is that, that no matter what's going on in society, no matter what's going on in our administration, in our, in our presidency, and globally, we have to know and understand that God will use whatever He wants to use for His good end. And I think it's a really important thing to really understand because I myself personally can get really wrapped up in, in worrying about and stressing about. And I get angry when I see things that are just don't make sense. Like, what are you people thinking? But we have to know that we can do as much as we can as believers. We can vote and we can witness and we can share the gospel and we can be good examples and be the light to this world, but we may not see the results in our lifetime. Maybe we will, maybe we won't, but I think it's just something to remember that as we go through this, we're seeing something occur here from a secular humanistic king with horrific practices that, are, that fly in the face of really God's plan for a man and a woman, and yet God still has a plan through this. I think it's interesting to keep that in mind. So I, I wanted to pause at that just for a moment just to kind of bring that, that part out there. So let's go ahead and continue. So that, that was the, basically the plan. Uh, so let's pick it up in verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, this is where they were, whose name was Mordecai. There, there, there enters Mordecai, okay? He's one of the key players in this entire book. So let's get really familiar with his name. He was the son of Jair, the son of Shemai, Shemai son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Now, the reason this is important, if you're writing notes down, I want you to make a note that he was a Benjaminite. And the reason that's important is because later on, you'll see some, some, some battling going on, some power play going on between a bad guy and a good guy. And I'm, the bad guy's not in the picture yet, so I'm not going to name him. 
but it, his name rhymes with name in a little bit, but it's not. Uh, <laughs> he got that. You must have read this book already. But there's, a, there's an enmity between, because of the past, because of their descendants, there's an enmity between Mordecai and another key player that's going to be, that you'll see throughout this book, okay? So just to, so you know that. He's a descendant of, Mordecai's a descendant of King Saul. How's that for craziness, all right? So verse 6, who had been carried away from Jerusalem, this is, this is Mordecai, among the captives, carried away with, with Jeconia king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah. Hadassah is the Jewish name for Esther. That is Esther, it says there, the daughter of his uncle. Now, it said, right, the daughter of his uncle. That's where I had a little bit of confusion, but that means cousin, right? Okay, so, that's, so they were cousins, for she had neither father nor mother. Now, Esther, I want you to back up a little bit. Esther, I think Pastor Greg may have said this last week, but it could have come from the Persian name Star, Esther, Esther, Star. Um, oftentimes when the Israelites were taken captive in whatever region they were in, they would take on another name or they were given another name uh, for whatever country it was. And so that's, maybe that was the trade name she had for, for the particular region she was in. So Hadassah is really Esther, uh, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. This was, a, this was a kinsman that received her in as a daughter, not as a wife. And verse 8, So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken up to the king's palace and put into custody. Let's continue on. Haggai, uh, the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. Again, this is the, the, the eunuch that was in charge of the women. That was his role, his job. Maybe he was good with you know, makeup and good with cosmetics and had a, a good sense of clothing. I don't know. But that's, that, that's who Haggai was. And the, young woman, and the young woman pleased him. It's referring to Esther. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. Now, that's an interesting thing right there. And, and I want you to look real quickly down at verse 15, at the end of 15. At the end of 15, now Esther was winning what? Favor in the eyes of all who saw her. That's, that's number two. Look up in verse, uh, in verse 17. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So, Back to the word favor, this is, this is the, the, the kind of the second example of God's hand of provision going out with Esther. Esther is simply a, a uh, Jew that was taken under her, uh, under her cousin's wing and that was yanked out of the household for a beauty pageant, basically, to figure out who's the, who's the, who the next queen's going to be. And yet, when she came into the, the actual uh, care of Haggai, the eunuch, she won favor with him. And as the story progresses, you'll keep seeing that word favor. And that is, that's just simply another word. Remember back when we studied Ruth and she happened to, in the certain field, right? And, and, this is, and she, she was a, a Proverbs 31 woman. 
But she, this woman uh, not only was beautiful, Esther, but she was winning favor. So that speaks to her character. But it also speaks to God's hand of provision that kept giving her favor through the people that she surrounded herself with. And so these are all things that God was doing and working in these people's lives around her that were edging her towards where God wanted her and by showing favor. So all these things, the good and the bad, were uh, leading her to be part of God's plan. So let's go ahead and, and continue here. So Haggai, this is continuing in verse 9, and he quickly provided her. It's interesting that we use the word quickly, but I think he realized something. He saw it, saw something in her because she was shown favor. Provide her with cosmetics and her portion of food. And with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and, and he advanced her and the other young women to the best place in the harem. So basically, these were the finalists, so to speak. They made the cut, right? And so after this primping and I think we, it goes through this process. It's very interesting. Yeah, we're going to get to it. But, but if you can just picture this giant nationwide beauty contest of all the people in the region, narrowing it down to the ones that Haggai, he, maybe he had a good eye for beauty, and he narrowed it down to seven. You're laughing back here. It's kind of funny in a way, but, it, but it's strange. It's just an odd thing. But there's Esther at the top of the pack. And I just think of funny movies with, like, miscongeniality with these beauty contests where it's just funny stuff, but... I digress. Um, so he quickly provided her with that and a portion of food. And uh, I don't know exactly why. We'll get to that in a little bit. But she made the cut. And verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or kindred. What does that mean? She was a Jew, right? Now, why wouldn't she want them to let them know that she was a Jew? Well, I'll tell you why. <laughs> It's a rhetorical question. I'm going to go back to, you don't have to turn there. But in Ezra, we know that Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, very much, very much the same period of time here. Uh, in Ezra 4, verse 6, it says, in, And in the reign of Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So they were marked people. They were marked people. That could very well be, she didn't lie about it. They just never asked. And she, she knew this. And so she didn't want to just blurt out that I'm a Jew. You know, she just wanted to move through the system because at that point, I think she knew the Lord had something for her because of all the favor shown. So she kept her mouth quiet about it. So Esther had not made her, her people known, or made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. She respected Mordecai. She was loyal. He was the father figure. And obviously, Mordecai, as we see through, as we're going to get into this whole book, we know that he's, he, he's, he's, he's someone, he's a Jew that has a high place. And, and I'm not, I don't want to get into it yet, but he's very intelligent. And he obviously knew how the Persians felt about the Jews. So he told her, you don't need to say anything. So verse 11, And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. He was concerned. He was looking for her. But he was also allowed to be there for some reason. And later on in the, in the, in the chapters, we're going to find out why. Verse 12, 
Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into, the king, to, to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months, did I read that right? Yeah, under regu- the regulations for the women, 12, let's, look at this, since this was the regular period of their beautifying. Ladies, if you can't get it done in 12 months, <laughs> just six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. All right, let me pause right there. Here's where we need a little bit of context and, and a little bit of understanding of, of that culture. I was trying to figure out what the year was about. And one of the historians said that typically in hot and dry, arid conditions, the skin was rough and scaly, and maybe they had a bath twice a year. Uh, So they were not presentable for a king, for royalty. So there was this period of getting their skin right and, and getting them to... Uh, it says here something about gave her portion of food. I don't know if that's a heavy portion or a light portion. I don't know because it said over here because that she had a beautiful figure. So I don't know what that means, but I know that it was not just a beautification thing as much as it was getting their skin to look well for them to be healthy and to to have eaten properly and their hair to be treated with with certain oils, olive oils and things that were good for the skin and then myrrh and there's all kinds of components within some of these oils that were good for sores or anything that was on them. So a, a year seems a bit long to me, but, but just know what's that? <laughs> Maybe not. I don't know, but I mean, they awfully continued. So there was this process that seems a little strange and long, but there were some historical elements to getting a person up to maybe the king's standards. What it, those obviously were clearly very high. So that's just kind of what, what that was about there. So verse 13, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. It doesn't really give, give us much on this. It might, it might just simply be adornments, jewelry of some kind, a headdress of some kind. But then it says in the evening when she would go in, in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shagaz, the king's eunuch. It's a different eunuch who was in charge of all the concubines. So it seems like however you say his name, Shagaz, he was in charge of generally of all the concubines, and there could have been up to 400 of them. Haggai was very closely trusted, and he was, he was with just the very select few that were the finalists, so to speak. And I know this seems, you know, guys, this just seems like such a crazy story, you know, just trying to, but it's the narrative of the Bible. It's what happened. It's just simply telling what occurred and why during these times, right? And so that's kind of why we're just kind of milking through this thing. And then it says, uh, who was in charge of the concubines? This, again, at the end here of 14, she would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So basically the king was able to spend time with her um, in many ways and she would either select or not. And most, most were rejected. Most were rejected. It was just this process that the king went through. Again, the Lord does not condone this. We know that. But this is the process that occurred for this to happen in the time that, was, that this took place. Now, verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her in as his own daughter to go into the king, he asked, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's unit, who, had, who now had charge of the women... Sorry, so let, me, let me backtrack there. She asked for nothing 
except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. So here is Esther defaulting and deferring to, to the leadership that she was under and saying, I'm, I don't want to do anything out of step. I want you to advise me. She was really winning favor. She was just that kind of a woman. And so she went in with just herself. And it says, now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. We, just, we had already read that. Verse 16 says, And when Esther was taken into King Ahasuerus, into his royal place in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king had a great feast. He gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. This was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So it was a time of celebration. This is a time, and which by the way, if you look back up here in verse 16, towards the beginning, it tells you what the month is, uh, Tibet, the seventh year of his reign. This was four years after Vashti was demoted. So it had been a four-year period. They'd had a war against Greece in the meantime. He got all sad and regretted what he did in the meantime. And then it took a year to, to, get all, to get all these women rounded up, to select them down out of hundreds and hundreds to seven and then to Esther. And that's how Esther was chosen. And Esther became queen. So that wraps up the very first part of this scene, the very first scene in this, and that is Esther rising to queenship. Um, the second part of this uh, chapter is a little smaller, but let's go through this. This is the second scene, if you will. Mordecai, her cousin, discovers something. Now, I love this fact that it says, in your Bible, does it have little headship or head titles over the little passages? What does it say there? Mordecai discovers a plot. What does yours say? Okay. okay. Oh, well, so I love the, I love the word discovers, discovers, because to me, that's almost like, well, the word discovers to me is like, behold, uh, Boaz came to a field or Ruth just happened to be like, like Mordecai discovers something. That's all the Lord orchestrating this. We'll know this as we get into this. The Lord placed Mordecai in a certain spot at a certain time to hear a certain thing that will be a part of God's plan as we move forward. So let's read this passage here. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, now let me, let me stop right here. That not, this is sort of just like a, as this was occurring, trying to set the stage for when this thing with Mordecai happened. This was more than likely a, a second attempt to simply bolster the king's harem. So when it says that it was like a round two of just bringing them all in. I don't know for what reason. Sometimes they did other things. They, 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 had, they, were, they were treated well. I, I tried to research this. I went back to Persian concubines in Persia. You know, type that into your Google search, you know. And, uh, and, and it was, it was, they were treated very well. They were fed well. And they were just kind of kept around for the king's delight. Sometimes the king would see them. Sometimes he wouldn't see them for years. They were just part of a, a harem. It's a very interesting culture. Certainly not 
what God has in mind, but it was something I wanted to look into just to see why. why, why what was this second round about? And, and most people say they were just trying to bolster his, his harem, so to speak. So maybe that brings the king more power or more influence. But if you look at verse 20, well, actually, second time. It, well, back up to 19, they were, the second, while the virgins were gathered the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. This is the entrance to the king's palace. Esther had not made her kindred or her people known yet, right? She's, as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. So that's, that's a neat part right there. She was a, a, a loyal and obedient young lady, young woman at this, at this time that obeyed him and listened to Mordecai just as she did when she was a child. So she still has her lips sealed. And that's important to know for later on in the story. In those days, verse 21, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, that's huge. They guarded the threshold of the king's gates, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. Basically, okay, let me just pause right there before we continue there. This is unique. This is another, and yet even in this one chapter, another indicator of God's sovereign hand altering or changing or using men, sometimes with their own the way they're going to go, or, but I think in this particular case, something turned, something was orchestrated by God, because eunuchs were typically men that were loyal, remember, and they guarded, and they were docile, and all the, their, their mission in life was to serve and guard the king, to serve and guard the king's company, to serve and guard the king's harem, and here we have two of them that are turning to murder the king. That's odd, but that's God. It's God taking a, doing something there because it's very unusual that eunuchs would turn like that. And so I find that very interesting. And as we see, Mordecai just happened to be there near the gates and overheard it and then told Esther and then Esther told the king the king took note that Mordecai basically saved his life. Let's continue on here. Let's look at verse 22. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told, he told Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. In other words, here's what Mordecai did. Make note that he did it. When the affair was investigated, they gave them due process and found to be so. The men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now let's remember that, that portion right there. Let's remember that it was recorded because nothing really happened right away. You know, he didn't say, oh, Mordecai, I'm going to elevate you to do whatever. But something happens later on, right? But just know that it was recorded because we're going to see that later in the story. Something interesting about this, it says, hanged on the gallows. We'd like to think that it was just a neck hanging, like in the Wild West, but what they actually did in those times, the Persians, this was a precursor to crucifixion. 
Thank you for that, Gordon. Appreciate that. <laughs> Is that better? <laughs> she, she was getting a suntan over here. We'll have to remember that one with the way the light's hitting. But the Persians were thought to have started the process that led to crucifixions. When it said they were hung, that means a beam was taken from a home, a large pointed beam, or maybe something carved into a beam, and they were impaled on the beam. And, that, ew, and, and that's how they were. Uh, they weren't really hung. They were just, well, they were hanging like this. And that's what occurred. Pretty violent, pretty gross. Didn't last as long as a crucifixion. They must have, they, they, it was perfected by the time the crucifixions came around, but it was a pretty horrific way to go. And when you walk into a township and see the two people impaled on stakes, I wonder how they did it. ding, ding, ding. Uh, maybe, I don't know, they were running go at them, and then they, I don't know. But I didn't Google that one. <laughs> so, yeah, how to impale your neighbor. So, I, uh, but I, I just found that was very interesting. Uh, when you read a passage and you, you go back and contextually, you see, oh, they were hung on the gallows. Well, they were done. They were more than, it was more than just a hanging by a rope. That would have been merciful. Well, at least he made his point. <laughs> As Gordon said, at least he made his point. That's good, Gordon. So I, I just, it's an, it's a, it's a, it's a, so two things have happened in this passage. I hope that you guys have the takeaways of Queen, the queen became queen. Esther became queen. And in, in, but you can see God's hand through, through a very humanistic, immoral procedure. She was raised to, queen, to be a queen. And we know eventually what her queenship was going to do for her people. We also see that God, using his pan of providence, gave her favor. Favor in the eyes of the people, which advanced her advanced her up in stage. And then we see Mordecai clearly with the unnatural nature of a eunuch. Two, two eunuchs shouldn't be whispering trying to kill someone. That just wasn't, it wasn't what they did. It wasn't in their nature. They were docile. They were loyal. And so seeing that turn and then Mordecai being there at the same time, all we see through this entire passage is God's hand of provision for what's coming in the future. So we're not done yet. I see you're zipping your Bibles up. We're done with the chapter. But, I, you know, I, I was really, I was really uh, thinking about this so that when we do Bible study, it's not just a history lesson. It's neat to see this, but I don't want to make it when I teach to simply be something you would see in a classroom lecture on history of the Persians. What's the application? Well, I have a couple of points of application. If you're still writing things down, you can take your pens back out. I think I, I, I closed down a little bit early. And the first thing I've already talked about is in, in your lives, people, church, do you see God's hand of providence? Have you ever seen God's hand of providence? And, and it's, sometimes it's easy to see his hand of providence when God gives us favor. Favor in his eyes and favor in the eyes of people. That's the easy thing. But when things get really tough, when, when, when you've been single a long time and you don't know what the Lord has, or you, you've gone through a divorce, or times are just difficult where ends aren't meeting, or, or you, you have health troubles that just don't seem to abate, or you, you can't, can't find a job, you don't know what the Lord has for you in the next moment. I'm going through that right now. I'm looking for a job. I don't know what the Lord has. 
But it's those times that we have to remember that God's hand of provision will follow through. It will come through. We just need to rest in that during those difficult times. Are we resting in that? When you read an Old Testament passage, can it speak to you? Does the Holy Spirit use it to comfort you so that you know that God is a faithful God and He will come through? We may not be able to see it. I said last week, John Piper always says, God's doing a thousand things in your life and you're aware of three. Do we know what He's doing? Do we trust that? The last thing, and I said it before, I just want to kind of sort of end on this one is I, I, I really strongly want to make sure that we understand that in spite of bad government, in spite of social media creators and people that run the entertainment industry, that, that we can't even fathom the foolishness of what they're doing and promoting, harming children. You know, I saw Sound of Freedom a couple weeks ago. I was angry, and I cried. But knowing that, that God is still sovereign, and He has a plan. He has a plan for the wicked. I was watching a, a, a sermon the other day about when Christ came, He was a, he was a, he was a humble lamb who, who was sacrificed in the atonement. When He comes a second time, it's not going to be fun. He's going to be swinging. I mean, it's... I, I pity... I pity those who are doing what they're doing now. I wouldn't want to be in their shoes. But in all that being said, just know that God will take vengeance. Trust in Him to do that. Do what we can do. Share the gospel. These are lost people still. Share the gospel. Be a light. Vote whoever we can into office. But at the same time, remember that God will, God will venge those who are evil. And so try to remember that God's hand will go forward. Remember passages like this. And when we're in the Kings, that even when it seemed dark and dim and we had evil, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, remember that even during those times, God knows what he's doing. He has a plan. He has a plan through all this, and he, he has a plan for us. Amen? Amen? Yeah. Just two quick things. One, yes. Persia, today is Iran. Today is, that's correct. Today's. how they love the Jews, right? Yes. She, yeah, you just said, Joan said that today, Persia, Iran is what Persia was. So that's a good point. Yes. Yeah. My Bible has a mention of, um, about being hanged. Yep. In Ezra 6.11. Yeah. And um, in Ezra 6.11, it says, furthermore, I decree that if anyone um, takes yeah. this edict of Dean is to be pulled from his house and he is to be lifted up and impaled on it. That's, so, <laughs> that, there you go. That's pretty serious. I wish we could do that these days, you know, for some of the, you know, sound of freedom. Anyway, that's a good point. What, what Joan was saying is that it was that Ezra 611 clearly gives what, it, what they did back then to, uh, to uh, yeah, it was it a beam of a house, a law, yeah, so. And it says that um, pretty. crime, the house is to be made a pile of rubble, I guess after you move the Tear it down, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's interesting, so. Well, I thank you again all for being here tonight. Pastor Greg is going to pick it up next week in chapter 3, and then I'll be in place in the week after that, and it's, uh, it's always good to see everyone. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you, Father, for, uh, foremost, that you are 
completely and sovereignly in control of this world, of this nation, of this country, of, of, of the city that we live in, and of our households and of us, Father. Lord, let us trust in your perfect hand of providence. Let us rest in the comfort of your sovereignty as we live our lives, Father. Things may not seem right to us. They, we may not be able to even grasp and understand what your plan is, but we know that in the end, Father, we know who wins. Lord, we pray that you keep everyone safe as they travel home this evening, and Lord, bring us together for fellowship on Sunday. In your name we pray. Amen.